Today is October 7th, 2014, and this is episode 151. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, highly experimental, and we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. There was an interesting announcement that just came out about some regional banks starting to integrate the Ripple protocol into their back end. So this is not really something that customers are going to see or interface with, but basically it's a way for the banks to interact with each other and settle up um, payments. As I understand it, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Andreas, but right now what happens is basically, you know, there, there are these networks of banks and when people give each other checks or payments or whatever, they kind of, every few days, they kind of settle up in bulk. You know, the banks settle up with each other. That's why it takes three to five days to process payments, usually to cash a check and things like that. Because um, there is this kind of waiting period where they have to basically pull it all together and then one bank has to pay another bank or vice versa. Or maybe they don't have to pay that much. Maybe a lot of it cancels out. But they've got to move it between accounts. So now they're thinking about using Ripple or they are going to use Ripple to settle up those debts instead. It's a very antiquated system. And if you've worked inside the financial services industry, what you see is that there are a lot of highly centralized players who handle these roles. So there are a number of clearing houses that handle the vast majority of interbank payments, of equity settlements, of bond settlements, of future settlements, etc. And those players are slow, they're inefficient, they introduce enormous possibility for corruption and fraud they give uh, certain players essentially better access to their systems. They're not very well regulated. Banks really don't like them for, for very good reasons. I believe in the stock market, it's DTCC, which is Depository Trust Corporation. It's a private company that does all of the clearing uh, stuff and um, for years has been under scrutiny for various weird practices. Patrick Byrne of Overstock.com talks about that particular organization, but they're a well-known black sheep in Wall Street with far too much power and far too little oversight. You have SWIFT, which is the Worldwide Interbank Fund Transfer Society, a global network through which most all international wire transfers go. You have the ACH Clearinghouse uh, for automated bank deposits and transfer between uh, checking accounts in the U.S. And of course, then you have uh, Visa, MasterCard, and other payment networks that have their own clearinghouses. Now, banks have to pay quite significant fees to these clearinghouses to do a function that, due to blockchain technology and and other approaches, such as Ripple's uh, uh, semi-decentralized or federated service system, or perhaps the open transactions federated uh, trustless server system, these functions no longer need to be centralized. And that also means they, don't, they no longer need to be inefficient, slow, and expensive, and give the party at the center far too much power that can be abused. So I would not be surprised at all if what we see as the first wave of adoption of these technologies is for banks to disintermediate some of the biggest thorns in their side, which are these clearinghouses that charge them a lot of money for an inferior service. 
they're not going to disintermediate themselves. They're going to disintermediate their own intermediates first. <laughs> what is the specific group of banks that's doing this? It's a couple of tiny regional banks. It's not any of the big players. Okay, yeah, it's Cross River Bank of Teaneck, New Jersey, and CBW in Topeka, Kansas were the two banks who were adopting Ripple. So yeah, banks that we haven't exactly heard of before. But nonetheless, I mean, I can kind of see that sometimes these small community banks, you know, they just kind of get crushed under the boot of the system, especially with these clearinghouses and the fees that they have to pay and all the stuff that they have to comply with. So yeah, it kind of makes sense that they might be interested in something like Ripple. And that's pretty much exactly what Ripple was designed for. it. It's a method to transfer debts, you know, basically, and have it interconvertible between different forms of currency. It's a debt transfer kind of mechanism. And so it makes total sense for banks and to use And for this. the smallest of the banks. I think this is a pattern we're going to see repeated again and again, which is that the system of financial services, the financial industry systems that allows consolidation and centralization into, you know, six to eight major global banks that have the regulators in their pockets, that have the politicians in their pockets, and that are able to control the system in such a way that they are immune to competition, immune to regulation, immune to oversight, and have a get out of jail free card whenever their corruption and fraud is revealed. You know, that system you can't compete against that if you're a tiny regional bank. You can't compete against that if you're not one of the big six to eight players. There's no game for you. Um, you're going to lose every time. The system is rigged completely. And so not just consumers, but the smaller competitors will end up using disruptive technologies like Bitcoin, disruptive technologies like the blockchain, or decentralization techniques like Ripples or open transactions to effectively compete against the bigger players by shifting the, the playing field. They can compete on the playing field as it is set up, because it's set up so that the house always wins. They have to shift the playing field to an area where the big banks can't compete. And these disruptive technologies operate as Trojan horses. And this is exactly what happens with technology. It's often adopted as a Trojan horse by the second and third tier competitors in a market who use it to attack mm. the incumbents, who use it to attack the big monopolistic core of an industry. I think we're beginning to see that with banks. I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing blockchain technology being used to uh, substitute clearinghouses that give an advantage to the largest incumbents, because you can't compete with them by spending more money. They have all the money. So also in the news today, Satoshi Nakamoto. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's a great newscaster <laughs> voice. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, Sato so uh, Satoshi's original email address um, was compromised. And uh, here's the note that showed up at p2pfoundation.ning.com. Uh, quote, Dear Satoshi, your docs, that's uh, basically identity information, passwords, and IP address are being sold on the darknet. Apparently, you didn't configure Tor properly and your IP leaked when you used your email account sometime in 2010. You are not safe. You need to get out of where you are as soon as possible before these people harm you. Thank you for inventing Bitcoin. I'm very skeptical of that. 
It sounds, I mean, it's written in kind of a, a kind way. Like, it's not like, hey, give me a million bitcoins or I'll release your info. <laughs> like, obviously a scammer. But, uh, well, so yeah. it does look like, uh, at the very least, his email was compromised. There's little doubt about that. Did someone so go and what, send an email from his email address or something? Yes, his email was confirmed compromised. There, a post was made uh, using his mm. I- identity. And actually, the Bitcoin uh, sourceforge.net slash project slash Bitcoin, which is the original repository, it's no longer in use, but it was the original one, was actually also managed by that email address. Mm. And so for a while there, it, uh, it's been reverted now, but for a day or two, it said Bitcoin with a subheading of buttcoin is a peer to peer butt. <laughs> so that's real yeah, mature, so, um, you know, that's really, that's very, uh, Showing off their intelligence, yeah. <laughs> One of the things, so so there are two things here. Um, I was contacted by a reporter who asked me about Bitcoin stuff sometimes, and he was like, he was like saying, "Oh, well, you know, I was checking out the incongruities in this uh, in the Bitcoin account by the person who's trying to ransom it, and we've been in contact with you know all the various people." And so uh, he was very convinced that it was legit, and I, I he he expected me to know all of this stuff. And he expected me to like be able to answer his question about like something that was going on kind of obscurely with this guy's blockchain thing because he really, really cares. And I was just like, why do you care? <laughs> and he didn't really have an answer. You know, I was like, I guess, you know, it's he, you know, runs a blog. So, you know, I guess you, you know, you do a blog thing. Well, everybody wants to have the scoop on like who Satoshi is, but like, that's the thing, like when the whole Newsweek thing happened back in March or April, I mean, that became just such a big deal. And I think like a lot of the original Bitcoiners were the only ones who were saying like, look, leave this guy alone. You know, <laughs> if he actually did invent Bitcoin, then he's given us all a great gift and let him. Obviously, he's not comfortable with being contacted. Give him or her or them some privacy, you know. It's just the celebrity mindset, though. There has to be, there has to be a face associated with, it, or it just doesn't work right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I realize that you know a lot of people want to thank Satoshi, and there are also like nefarious actors, you know, who want to capitalize on everybody on the Bitcoin community's desire to protect Satoshi and reverence for Satoshi and stuff like that, and maybe demand ransoms and stuff like that, but. Ah, I, it's just frustrating. I just really wish <laughs> Satoshi could get their wish, which is to be left alone. Well, uh, Adam, did you know about this? Adam Back's um, Wikipedia page got edited. It got like changed right back, but somebody edited his Wikipedia page to add a line to basically say like, it was like Adam Back is a cryptographer that invented Hashcash and also. Uh, is Satoshi Nakamoto and invented Bitcoin and then it got changed like right back. So obviously it was just someone like trolling Wikipedia, but yeah, but but that happened too. No. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. And, uh, I'll just, I don't know, (laughs) but probably not. Right. You know, the best part about this is that it's another loose end that gets tied up here because Either way, you know, in a couple of weeks, we're going to, you know, somebody's going to know who Satoshi is, we're going to know who's, and then it'll be, you know, much more difficult to keep this secret than has been to this point. Or, you know, this will turn out to be a dead end. And yeah, Satoshi might have used it at one point, but 
you know, it's good for archiving purposes. That's cool. I like that a lot. You know, I mean, like if, if this is true, then that means that every copy of every email that Satoshi sent from that email address is actually stored somewhere. So we don't have to find them from all of the other people. We can actually just go directly to the source and get them there. Right. But uh, yeah, I mean, if Satoshi was really careful about using those accounts, then what identifying information could be on there? Like, I'm sure people will scour it for clues, but it is theoretically possible right? To like, just basically say, okay, when I'm using these accounts, I am Satoshi Nakamoto. I'm not whoever I was before and uh, not have any information that links the two. But that's hard. It's really I mean, hard. Like, but if I anyone can do it, it's ever, Satoshi, yeah. right? <laughs> well, but I mean, let's not give superhero powers to someone who is clearly an individual who recognized that his role was that of the catalyst and not that of the leader. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, I I mean, it's, I, like, obviously, Satoshi was thinking about privacy. Like, I mean, Satoshi's, like, one of the last posts on the forum that Satoshi made was, like, about WikiLeaks, because it was, like, in 2010, when PayPal stopped processing the payments for WikiLeaks, um, people were talking about it, and Bitcoin was starting to get some attention, and Satoshi was like, well, it would have been good to get this attention in, in any other context, but WikiLeaks is you know, kick the hornet's nest and now they're heading for us and it's dangerous. <laughs> like clearly was uncomfortable with the attention. And like when Gavin went to go talk to the CIA, basically that was like the last time he heard from Satoshi. right? <laughs> and that was the last time anyone heard from Satoshi. <laughs> uh, I mean, clearly a privacy minded individual. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past him to be completely, you know, clean and anonymous on, on his accounts, but it is, I'm sure people were trying like mad to get into all of those accounts because they realized uh, it would be profitable and, um, you know, they could really, uh, really do something with it. Um, I guess we'll see. Did So, like, so have the, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I said, I think that, um, I think enough time has passed that it's probably okay. I mean, that's the point is that, you know, we shouldn't, when I'm, when I said we shouldn't ascribe superhuman powers to them, uh, really what I mean is that, you know, it's very, very difficult to maintain a consistent identity and to never have a leak. It's totally plausible. And in fact, to me, it's more plausible that there would be leaks in his security or her security, sorry, um, for, uh, compared, you know, uh, when compared to a security expert, chances are pretty good, not a security expert. You have, you have leaks. But what happens is that the IP address kind of ceases to matter after a certain point. Um, and, you know, again, like there are certainly ways where you could track somebody back and, you know, find out what house they were living in. But if he's moved on and really made a clean break from that identity, as I think we all hope he, did, uh, he or she did, um, you know, uh, then this is just good. I mean, like that's that's really the way that I look at it. Is that either way, whether the uh, Satoshi is found and identified, or whether um, or whether you know this is just a dead end, it's good because it's another one of the very few loose ends that could potentially identify the creator of Bitcoin, and there are less to less out there, you know, to potentially pop up in the future. And of course, this probably, like all the other bad things, quote unquote, that happen, will just draw attention to Bitcoin instead of having any sort of negative repercussions. Right. Yeah. So has the name, have the, have the crackers released the name of who they think is Satoshi or whatever? Uh, not that I've seen. Uh, I think that there's currently an extortion process right, going on yeah. right now. From, but who but, are they extorting uh, from? Like the Bitcoin community or something? 
I don't necessarily know that they know that. Uh, no, they're extorting it from Satoshi, uh, supposedly. Um, supposedly, one of the uh, people who uh, who is accessing the email account at this point is Satoshi, or might be Satoshi, or the person who uh, is in there as a cracker thinks that they're Satoshi. It sounded like it was pretty convoluted, and again, it's people using Tor and routing around and doing all this stuff, so it's going to be really hard to sort it out no matter what happens. And again, to a certain extent, it doesn't matter. It just matters that these people figure it out, figure out what they're going to do, and then do it or don't. Mm. Yeah. So the last post on the P2P Foundation back in April or was it April? Mar- yeah, I think it was March of this year, where he said, "I'm not Dorian Nakamoto." Is there any chance that that was not Satoshi who said that? That that was someone else? Uh, it's a, it's a. I think it's a very good yeah. question. I mean, the real Satoshi well, could actually, be dead, you know, they, or they could be on another planet, or <laughs> maybe not. But yeah, or <laughs> they living could be in on a woods. desert island somewhere, you know, living yeah, in the woods, exactly. completely disconnected, or in you know New Zealand doing something. I mean, like, who the heck knows? You know, what would you do? So, <laughs> oh my god what would i that's a good question <laughs> yeah antarctica mars yeah get out of dodge <laughs> I have to get off sure. this planet <laughs> <laughs> well i think there's only one solution for it stephanie what's that we're moving to sealand <laughs> yes i love sealand <laughs> let's go This episode is brought to you by CryptoKit.com, the easiest, fastest way to spend Bitcoins right from your browser. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is also brought to you by FoldingCoin. Folding at Home is a long-running project from the folks at Stanford University that basically enlists your spare CPU or GPU power to simulate complex protein folding. The results of all this distributed computation are tabulated and analyzed. They help new medicines and cures be derived for some of the most vexing diseases faced by man. But there's a problem. There's no reward for sharing your computer cycles in this way. You can join a team and you can earn points, but there can be no profit motive in helping research. So here's where FoldingCoin comes in. It's what I call a cause coin. FoldingCoin is a token built on counterparty created on a schedule, publicly set in advance, and distributed to those who join the FoldingCoin folding team, based on their individual contribution to that team's effort. FoldingCoin can't be redeemed right now, and it's only beyond counterparty utility as it can be used to tip at participating meetups, so its market value right now is dubious, but I think about it another way. If protein folding is something that people find valuable, and the only way you can get folding coin is by provably folding proteins, then even someone who doesn't want to contribute computational cycles, but does want to support protein folding, can accomplish this simply with money, by purchasing and holding some of the folding coin tokens. So if people like the cause or think it's important, now they have a really easy way to support the project's ecosystem at a meta level. And individual folders can choose between whether they think there's more support now, and thus a higher demand for the token, or if they think that that'll be more true at some point in the future. Interested? Confused? Visit foldingcoin.net to learn more. So I was thinking about how to start off talking about this because there was a post on Reddit that kind of alleged that this happened. Somebody posted on Reddit claiming to be a former employee of Butterfly Labs 
over the last weekend. And this was before the news broke that we're just about to talk about. But this person said, oh, I'm a former employee of Butterfly Labs. They've been raided by the FTC and they've been shut down. And it was an unconfirmed rumor on Reddit at this point from someone claiming to be a former employee. So, of course, all the Redditors just piled on and said, yeah, I heard from my sister's brother's cousin's girlfriend that Butterfly Labs got shut down. And it was it turned into kind of a funny thread about like rumors and hearsay. It turned out to actually be true. Butterfly Labs did get shut down by the FTC in response to a complaint, at least one complaint, probably actually numerous complaints. Um, and of course, the FTC put out all the heavy handed kind of language about they're protecting the better consumers, you know, <laughs> they're going to protect you at any cost. Maybe we need to explain what is the connection of the FTC, uh, perhaps even also what is Butterfly Labs, but what is the connection of the FTC? Let's start out with what's Butterfly Labs. So like if you haven't heard about Butterfly Labs, they are or they were a company that uh, had an interesting reputation in the Bitcoin world. They made ASIC miners and they're kind of famous for selling these ASIC miners on pre-order when the price of Bitcoin was very low, around $10, and then not shipping the product for at least a year. And by that time, the price of Bitcoin had gone up to, oh, you know, $100, $1,000. And so people were really upset about not getting their equipment on time. And also, you know, the nature of ASIC mining being what it is, by the time these a lot of these machines were shipped, they were basically obsolete because Butterfly Labs wasn't keeping up with the technology to provide the hashing power to keep up with the Bitcoin network difficulty and give their customers an advantage. I guess it's not about keeping up with the network difficulty. It's about being ahead of the network difficulty to get the biggest um, return for people who invest in mining equipment. This is basically the story of Butterfly Labs. They had a lot of irate customers because of this. Although they did ship some machines, you know, they weren't like a total scam. They did. Oh, they shipped... Thousands of machines, but often very, very delayed. So in some cases, I think some of their newer platforms shipped more promptly. But the first batch, and I'm not remembering correctly if this was the jalapeno or even before that. Yeah, I think it was the jalapeno. Yeah, th those were really, really very badly delayed. Also, the customer service wasn't handled very well. In many cases, customers who asked for refunds were given refunds in the current dollar price rather than the original Bitcoin. Oh, so I don't think anyone got a refund in Bitcoin. I think all of the refunds were given in dollars and people were mad because they realized, you know, if they had just saved those 20 Bitcoins or 200 Bitcoins, however much it was. At, yeah, I think in some cases it was more like 200 Bitcoins that they might have spent on one of these miners and just kept it, held on to it, um, maybe paid for their Butterfly Labs pre-order with dollars then they would have had, you know, several hundred grand a, a year down the line. And they were mad when they realized that they didn't have that. And of course, Butterfly Labs couldn't give the refunds in Bitcoin. They didn't have the Bitcoin to be able to do that, or they didn't want to, or both. Or so they claimed. And then along comes the FTC together with the U.S. Marshal Service. First of all, the FTC is the Federal Trade Commission, which is a branch of the Department of Commerce, I believe, which has some connection to consumer protection, but it's not a branch of the Department of Justice, as far as I know. So this is a somewhat weird, because the FTC is known for where you file consumer complaints, but I don't think I've ever heard of the FTC jointly organizing 
a raid with U.S. Marshal Service on a private business. So that was a bit bizarre. Yeah, you're right. It's weird. The thing about the FTC that you learn in school when you're growing up is that they're there to bust up monopolies, right? And, and they actually did get involved in technology cases in the past with Microsoft. Microsoft was selling these bundles of software and they said having a monopoly on the market. There's like a European version of it too that also had a case that where they were involved with Microsoft. But I think the association that a lot of people have is that they are there to like ensure competition in the market, which it's kind of funny that people think of a government agency trying to ensure competition because they usually do the opposite of that. But yeah, that's what they're supposed to be for. But a raid, yeah, you don't usually think of that branch of government as one that uses the tactics of SWAT teams <laughs> rather than the tactics of uh, courts and lawsuits, right? Yeah, we're in a brave new world where bureaucrats carry M16s and knock down doors. Yeah, so the FTC last week apparently did, in fact, participate in a raid led by the U.S. Marshal Service. In this raid, they confiscated a whole bunch of uh, servers and other gear and assets, as well as simultaneously filing a complaint in the courts asking for an injunction to seize assets and freeze assets, essentially trying to tie up uh, Butterfly Labs. It seems at this point, at least, that Butterfly Labs is no longer operating as a company. They certainly don't seem to have the servers after that raid. I don't know if they do have any assets or if they are continuing it as a company, but it seems that that was the end of Butterfly Labs. And now they're facing a complaint in the federal court system. Do you remember several months ago, there was a big thing about how PayPal actually froze Butterfly Labs merchant account, which had millions of dollars in it. They were processing the refunds that a bunch of customers had been requesting from PayPal because they were unsuccessful in getting it back from Butterfly Labs itself? Yes. And there are also a number of outstanding cases, one of which was looking for class action status. So part of the reason the assets have been seized, according to the FTC, is to be able to pay for some of those things. Now, after the filing of the complaint, I believe on Tuesday, the courts granted the request to halt operation of the company. The FTC says they now look forward to putting the company's ill-gotten gains back in the hands of consumers. The other interesting part is the complaint against the company, what they said about what happens to Butterfly Labs. So I read a couple of quotes from the complaint, and it basically alleged, I don't know who filed it, do you know? Well, the FTC filed a complaint, and it used as part of its evidence a number of lawsuits filed by individuals, some of whom had already prevailed, some of whom were looking for class action status and still pursuing their claims in, in the courts. Yeah, so some of the language of the allegations against them was that they took this money on pre-orders and then they failed to ship the equipment until it was useless, until it was basically just a room heater. <laughs> that was the language that I saw. Which isn't entirely unfair. I mean, in some cases, that's exactly what happened, right? The other part that's interesting is as part of the complaint by the Federal Trade Commission, they say that the management of the company, and of course, these are alleged complaints, so nothing's been proven in court yet. Yep. But they're saying that the executives in the company diverted funds uh, for such purposes as 
bathroom and kitchen renovations, department stores, sporting goods stores, hunting goods stores, gun shops, massages, jewelry, and a bunch of other things. I think also luxury cars. I'm not quite sure, but it, it leads like it reads like a long laundry list of personal shopping happening on some fifty million dollars that the company had accumulated through orders. And it appears,、wow. at least from the complaint, that、uh, some of the corporate assets were diverted for personal use. So basically, people partying on the back of customer money. At the same time, they're facing lawsuits and demands for refunds from these customers. Like you said, these are all just allegations, so we don't know what actually happened. But there were certainly a lot of people who were PO'd about not getting the equipment that they ordered. Now you could say that they did make the decision when Bitcoin was worth ten dollars and thought, "Oh, five gigahash per second—that sounds like a good deal for two thousand dollars. I'll do that." You know, I'll, here's two twenty bit, two hundred bitcoins, right? They did make that decision voluntarily, and part of ordering something on pre-order is not the expectation that it won't arrive soon, but the, certainly the possibility exists that that could happen. A pre-order is not a guarantee. And there is some healthy skepticism that needs to be involved, of course, even though it's a painful thing, and even though we want to trust these companies that say, "Yeah, we're working on it. We have the technology ready." And I actually interviewed Josh Zerlin from Butterfly Labs,、uh, like over a year ago, at a conference, and talked to him about this. And he was、um, trying to explain like some of the manufacturing delays that they had had, and you know, he had he had a story about it and everything, which you know sounded plausible to me, of course. But you know, stuff happens when you're talking about pre-orders, especially when it's a new technology.、Um, sometimes companies just can't deliver, or they can't deliver in a timely manner. And in in the Bitcoin mining world, in a timely manner is a very important aspect. It makes all the difference. People were taking a risk by buying these machines. There is a certain amount of, I guess, responsibility to take for that. To you know, risk comes with responsibility when you take a risk. There is some responsibility. However, you could certainly say that what was promised was not necessarily delivered, and then there's responsibility that falls on Butterfly Labs as well for that. It's also probably important to note at this point that Josh Zerlin, who we both interviewed, in fact,、uh, I interviewed him in Argentina around the same time. Oh yeah, that's right. Was the head of director of operations, I believe, at Butterfly Labs, and not one of the Founding executives or one of the executives named in the complaint, specifically the Federal Trade Commission complaint, named three individuals in addition to BF Labs Inc. doing business as Butterfly Labs. They named、uh, Darla Drake, Nasser Gosseri, and Sony Vlasidis as the defendants, or in this case, the recipients of that complaint. They're alleging improprieties in financial management. So Nasser was the chief technology officer, and、uh, Sonny Vlasidis was the CEO, I believe. Darla Drake was the general manager at Butterfly Labs. So just to point out that Josh Zerlin, who we interviewed, was involved in operations of the company. I think customer operations or something like that. Just to to clarify, it's got to be a tough job. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> like you gotta, you gotta hand it him. He he was kind of on the chopping block, and you know perhaps didn't didn't completely bear the responsibility for what he was、uh, getting rotten tomatoes thrown at him for. 
Well, all of this uh, really goes to the point that I think we've made many times, which is this industry is a very rapidly growing industry. It's an industry that has a direct connection to real money, and at the same time is receiving massive investments uh, from venture capitalists, from angel, angel investors, from individual investors, as well as a, a burgeoning uh, market in both mining equipment, uh, software, and all of the other things that go together with this industry. It's attracted a, a great deal of shady characters who think that um, department store purchases and gun stores and bathroom and kitchen renovations are legitimate business expenses. I left out massages in that particular case. With all of the stress of the refunds, I think massages might have been a legitimate business <laughs> expense. It must have been very stressful, but all of the other ones certainly weren't. And it, you know, the, the space has attracted all of these weird characters who are taking advantage of customers and stealing their money. The Butterfly Lab saga is not the first and certainly won't be the last. In fact, it's almost the rule rather than the exception that when there's a pre-order or something that's promised, it's usually not delivered as promised in some form or fashion. I think a lot of people learn that lesson with Butterfly Labs, with, with those jalapenos or that early order. What was the time frame on that? I guess, I guess it would be between 2011 to 2012. The Bitcoin community at that point was smaller and I would say was a lot made up of people who really take that to heart, the idea of caveat emptor to heart. Like they're not really looking for anyone to protect them. They're just, you know, okay, I take the risk and I'm going to run with it. And like after this whole thing happened with Butterfly Labs, you know, six months went, went by after they started selling this first product on pre-order and people were like, look, it's not coming. You know, there's, there's these delays. This is really bad. Around that time, I just remember starting to see a lot of stuff come up where people really felt like they got burned. There were a lot of people posting on the Bitcoin forum that everything was a scam and like, this is a scam until proven otherwise. Everything's a scam, scam, scam. Butterfly Labs is a scam, you know. So I think that at least some people did sort of learn that lesson and take it to heart, but it's a hard one. And sometimes it's one that we have to learn multiple times before it really sticks with us. Unfortunately, I don't think the government is going to protect people in these cases. I know there are lots of people who want that to be the case, but it's not going to get you back your bitcoins if the FTC goes in with guns blazing and raids Butterfly Labs. The only thing that can protect you from that in the future is just being careful about the amount of risk that you're willing to take on, I guess. As new people come into the Bitcoin community, perhaps they haven't been around long enough to see some of these experiences play out, quote, invested money and it didn't work out, you know, or somebody took the money and ran. When someone asks for Bitcoins or asks for money, it's a scam until proven otherwise, basically. A lot of people don't have that mindset because they just haven't seen it long enough. But I, and I hope this will be a lesson to them. We can put that message out there verbally, just caveat emptor, be really careful and be really skeptical out there because ultimately, the responsibility does lie with you. People can call on the government to come in later and pick up the pieces, but it's not going to make people whole. And the methods that they use to do it can have implications for other things, other freedoms. And it, it can happen to even the most well-informed and even the people who keep repeating this message of caveat emptor. I certainly have yep, been me too. victim <laughs> of scams in this particular space. <laughs> I know too. you have too. And then also 
after the fact accused of being a participant in those scams, even though uh, that wasn't the case. But it's yeah, it's 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 definitely a difficult space to navigate with with all of this money sloshing around. I think still the 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 rate of fraud is probably low compared to what happens on Wall Street on a daily basis. But certainly on a per that's capita. That's a great point to bring up. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, we on a per dollar every time basis, we talk about it's much yeah. much smaller. On a per capita basis, however, I I think there's there's a fair degree of, uh, of fraud in this space too. Today's magic word is talk. That's T A L K. Talk. You've got until the 11th of October to visit letstalkbitcoin.com and enter the magic word for your share of the listener rewards. Just last week, uh, Gavin Andreessen announced on Twitter that he was working on a little fun project on invertible bloom filters and efficient set reconciliation without prior context, which is a uh, essentially a system of technology. Uh, bloom filters are used extensively in Bitcoin. They're probabilistic data structures for doing search queries. Inverted bloom filters are bloom filters that can do set enumeration. And um, in addition to that, uh, Gavin's code base also quoted a paper written at uh, UC Irvine and UC San Diego about set reconciliation. Just for the non-technical people, what is set reconciliation and what's the application of bloom filters? Set reconciliation has to do with how you synchronize two databases by transmitting the minimum amount of information about their differences. Uh, so obviously this is about the blockchain and nodes and the, the minimum transaction set, right? That's what I'm thinking. Um, so Gavin said this is about optimizing the blockchain, and then he left. Uh, there's no other information in there, just quotes from two papers and a bit of code he's written. And it seems that he's doing something related to either reducing the size of the blockchain or um, reducing the amount of data that needs to be transmitted or reducing the storage footprint of transactions within the blockchain. But something to do with those things. Uh, Bloom filters or, are already used primarily in combination with Merkle trees for simplified payment verification nodes in Bitcoin. What that means is if you have a lightweight client, instead of downloading a full copy of the blockchain, it validates transactions by issuing queries using Bloom filters, so asking its neighbors about transactions, and then validating those with Merkle trees, uh, which are data structures embedded in the blockchain. What Gavin seems to be working at now is kind of using a couple of new technologies in that space in order to make the transmission of the blockchain more efficient. But very little information. All he's implemented right now is a proof of concept implementation and library that could potentially be merged into Bitcoin to be used for, for some optimization process. This is fascinating stuff. It's uh, it's pretty cutting edge technology. Gavin is doing probably the vast majority of the code work in Bitcoin nowadays. There's you know three or four developers who are producing the vast majority of the code for the Bitcoin Core reference client. So I have no idea what all this means, but it was intriguing enough that I thought I'd bring it up and see if uh, Gavin wants to talk about it or if somebody else understands what this is, what's going on here, what Gavin has planned wants to talk about what these things are and what they mean for optimization and space constraints on the blockchain. 
I don't understand it from a technical standpoint beyond a basic level, but um, it's interesting that it seems like maybe Gavin's being kind of tight-lipped about this because I could imagine like anytime you propose a new thing in Bitcoin or you propose some kind of change, everybody just goes nuts talking about it and then probably nothing much gets done. In some cases, you could see that as a as a great thing because it means that every change that's implemented in Bitcoin would be considered really, really carefully. But maybe he just wants to actually work on it and have something to put out before he gets kind of bogged down by the discussion and the theoretical. Well, I think that's exactly the hint in his tweet was, you know, I, I, I get away from the noise and work on some fun code. But I want to know what this fun code is all about because it's intriguing. I want to find out what he's playing with. So... Uh, if you have any ideas, contact us at letstalkbitcoin.com. Uh, Andreas at letstalkbitcoin.com for me. And you can find the other hosts there. And I'd, I'd love to hear if you have any uh, thoughts on this particular little experiment. Inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Adam Levine. Music was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz.